Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Toward the end of the hour, uh, we'll have a live conversation with Des Moines' new mayor, uh, Mayor Connie Bozen. So Des Moines residents especially send a question or a concern for Mayor Bozen now to our email, river to river at iowapublicradio.org. Again, that conversation with Des Moines' new mayor, Connie Bozen, coming up toward the end of our hour. Well, immigration has become a top voter concern on par with inflation. In fact, this month, more voters pointed to immigration than inflation as a top policy concern. That's according to a new Harvard Caps Harris poll released just this week. The survey found that 35 percent of respondents listed immigration as their paramount concern among a an array of issues uh, with inflation, a close second. Now, we've heard in our news that a bipartisan group of senators has agreed to a compromise to crack down on the surge of migrants across the U.S. border with Mexico, including reducing the number who are allowed to live and work in our country temporarily. But a final deal uh, evidently depends on resolving critical funding disputes. Also this week, immigration in the news in a different way, a U.S. Supreme Court decision in that Texas razor wire case. We'll talk about that in a moment. All good reasons uh, to discuss why the issue of immigration continues to divide our country, how a shift in immigration policy could impact us here in the Midwest. Later this half hour, in just a few minutes, Iowa State University labor economist Peter Erasm, I'll ask him how an immigration policy overhaul could benefit us economically here in the Midwest. But first, uh, let's tap into the perspective of Christina Ortiz. Uh, Christina is associate professor of anthropology at the University of Minnesota in Morris. Christina, welcome to our program. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being on with us. Uh, Before we get into your views and explanation of immigration policy and perhaps where it's headed, uh, tell us a little bit about the roots of your academic pursuits. You lived most of your life in Iowa. You went to grad school at the University of Iowa, I understand, and have focused on meatpacking communities and industrial food production. That's correct. I am a born and bred Iowan um, from southern Iowa, and I uh, have a Latino heritage. And so my research questions were born out of my questions about my family and what my life might have been like if there were different twists of fate in my history and the history of my family. Um, And so I was really interested in the ways that industrial uh, food production impacts the social lives of communities, because there's a lot of research about the economic impacts. Um, But I was really interested in the ways that changes in rural communities help people or sometimes don't help people to feel as if they belong. Mm. Yeah, and we have plenty of those communities here in Iowa. You can name others. I think of what Storm Lake uh, springs to mind, but other communities right here in Iowa that that are immigrant communities and also communities where you find meatpacking and industrial food production. 
Absolutely. There are so many. And I've I've had the privilege to visit many of them and attend events like Quinceañeras in places like Marshalltown and Columbus Junction and a variety of other uh, communities. In that work, what conclusions did you reach? What overall themes did you explore? So one of the big uh, questions and, and ideas that I was exploring had to do with how can we make life easier for all the members of a community and make all the people who are living there feel as if they belong and as if this is their home and that you know they they are able to make lives um, that they want in these communities. Uh, so I ended up looking at things like people's religious lives and how they join religious communities or how their faith sustains them in their everyday lives. I looked at education and the ways that our educational institutions are grappling with some of these big issues of how to reach families and their children, how to communicate effectively with parents, for example, for example, who aren't used to the American education system or who don't speak English very well yet. Um, and all of these are challenges that are heightened in rural communities where we don't have really well-developed infrastructures and lots of people to be able to handle some of the labor that goes with that. Um, and we often operate with volunteers on volunteer models for interpreting and social services and these kinds of things. And that's a really big challenge for small communities in particular. Okay, good. We have a nice foundation of your research focus uh, there. So let's plow on <laughs> into what's current in immigration. And I referenced that in my introduction. I just wonder, an open-ended question here, what is your understanding of the current shift in attitudes towards immigration? There is evidently a shift of the Democratic Party shifting here. We have this deal taking shape in the Senate. How would you characterize what's happening in the country and in our politics. I would say that the increased divisiveness and rhetoric about fear of immigration and the you know, different metaphors of, of nature and uncontrollability like floods and waves of immigrants are really detrimental to what I know as the neighborliness and welcoming nature of a lot of Midwestern people who want their communities to be nice places for people to make their lives. And that divisiveness makes it very scary for people who maybe a few years ago were pretty open about their immigrant experience and were comfortable making their lives in rural communities in Iowa, but now are afraid that maybe their neighbor who brought them cookies when they moved into their house is actually in other spaces of the community actively trying to make their lives more difficult or make sure that they can't live in the rural community where they do. Mm. What do you feel is primarily driving this divisiveness, this change in attitudes? I think it's fear. I think we're operating with a lot of fear rather than solidarity and uh, a spirit of welcoming that has long characterized and been purported to be a part of Midwestern life. Um, and Yeah, but fear, 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 d fear driven by what, though? I think fear of the unknown, fear of the other, fear of not having enough for oneself and that that sort of like limited good kind of notion. And I think that fear is really making us act in ways that are not consistent with our neighborliness. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, uh, let's talk about the bipartisan deal that has uh, been negotiated in the Senate uh, over the past couple of months, I understand. In short, um, it has to do with parole. Republicans want stricter limits on parole. I think a big part of this, while Democrats have resisted limiting parole. Um, uh, Tell us, uh, first of all, if you see that as central to this, what does it mean to be granted parole? How does that fit into our current immigration system? So parole offers some immigrants from some places and in some circumstances the ability to enter the United States legally and make their case, for example, for asylum or for other various statuses that might be available to them temporarily. Um, So there's a time limit on parole. Sometimes the U.S. government might renew those statuses like they have for um, TPS uh, for some communities. Uh, but sometimes those programs end or are, you know, ended on pur- purposely by by uh, policy. And that uncertainty really makes it difficult for community members to plan their lives, to make their futures, to make decisions about things like where they want to live, how they if they want to buy a house, if they want to make investments in businesses, because you don't want to invest in a business or buy a house if you're not sure that you can continue to live in it and pay for it into the future. Mm-hmm. Now, the the Republicans, the GOP, consider parole a dangerous loophole, as I understand it, that fuels illegal immigration, uh, a loophole that may, must be tightly closed. But to many Democrats, uh, parole is a crucial tool that allows the administration to, te- to treat um, often desperate migrants humanely. Uh, and they, many Democrats say this must be preserved particularly for the vulnerable populations fleeing the failing states and uh, feel, uh, fleeing war uh, in- instances. How do you see this debate? It actually kind of scares me because I think there are much better solutions <laughs> than parole. And the Democrats mm. latching on to parole as the primary tool or a primary mechanism for humanitarian Uh, approaches or humanitarian perspectives in policy is not the greatest, but is what we have right now, I guess. And the fact that we can't be more creative and come up with something better and more long lasting and more effective is is challenging. Mm -hmm. Um, The emerging Senate deal seeks to reduce parole numbers Uh, making it harder for migrants to claim asylum, expanding detention capacity here in the U.S., also uh, expediting the expulsion of migrants who uh, lack uh, lawful reasons to stay in the country. Christina? All of those policies that make it more difficult for people to enter the United States, make their lives more difficult while they're here, and make it easier and Um, diminishes their uh, ability to make their case because the process is expedited. All of those processes and policies are scary and don't actually protect anyone. They don't keep our communities safer. Um, And in the global sense, the United States already is not accepting legally the number of immigrants that we might expect from the most powerful and wealthy countries in the world. Um, And so this idea that we need to be afraid of how many immigrants are coming to the United States and the resources that they are using up, to me, is just another part of this fear rhetoric 
that is somewhat inaccurate. The people who are coming here mm. want to work at jobs and make their lives better and provide for their children, just like all the other members of rural communities that I know. And these policies that make those lives harder to make and more difficult to assert are not helpful um, to people I really care about in the communities who are currently living in Iowa and those who might come yeah. in the future. Okay, we're going to take a short break and be back in just a moment uh, uh, with more of our discussion with Christina Ortiz, um, Associate Professor of Anthropology at the University of Minnesota in Morris. Uh, as we've heard, she has uh, deep roots uh, uh, in her academic pursuits here in Iowa, born and bred in Iowa. And, uh, uh, and uh, we'll be back in just a moment with more of our discussion. It's River to River from IPR News. Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Back with more River to River from IPR News, I'm Ben Kiefer in this portion of the program discussing why the issue of immigration continues to divide our country um, in a moment, how it might impact us here in the Midwest. A new policy could, uh, from an economic standpoint, ISU labor economist Peter Arasm uh, will be with us. Right now, uh, we're talking with Christina Ortiz, Associate Professor of Anthropology at the University of Minnesota, um, and uh, she was, was born and bred in uh, Iowa, uh, went to grad school at the University of Iowa. It's a lot of um, her academic work focused on immigration and uh, communities where uh, there are a lot of immigrants here in Iowa. Christina, to get back to the point you made that this is not helpful, the focus on parole, the discussion of the uh, bipartisan deal uh, that's uh, being negotiated in the Senate. President Biden has extremely low approval ratings when it comes to immigration, this handling of immigration. What I mean, he has to deal with the political realities. If you say these fears are unfounded, there are still those political realities. What would you say needs to be done? I would very much like to see more of my neighbors talking about how they are making their communities more welcoming to uh, immigrants and their children. Policies that in Iowa tend to be sometimes at the municipal level, like uh, municipal identifications that make it possible for people to uh, move around the community and have a, a verifiable form of identification. That's very helpful. Uh, Minnesota just passed driver's licenses for all so that regardless of your immigration status, you can get a driver's license and get car insurance and be safe on the road. Those kinds of policies, mm -hmm. whether they're at the state or municipal or other federal levels, are really helpful and make it more possible for people to be safe and live safely in their communities um, and make their lives. Yeah, uh, you mentioned Minnesota's policies. Those are uh, quite a contrast to Iowa policies, which I'm sure you're familiar with, aren't you? Correct, yes. The The policies in Iowa that, that try to uh, make life more difficult for people, 
do actually make life more dangerous, not just for immigrants themselves, but also for other people in the community. For instance, Real ID that doesn't allow undocumented people to get driver's licenses um, and the rhetorics around various kinds of processes about not providing information in languages other than English, for example, these sort of English-only policies that have been around since the 1990s, they just provide a message to the community that you are not wanted, that you as an immigrant are not wanted and are not welcome as neighbors or in the community, and that we would like to do everything we can to make life harder for you. Mm -hmm. This week, a narrowly divided U.S. Supreme Court sided with the Biden administration in an ongoing dispute over the Texas border and this razor wire fencing, the fencing installed by the state, part of, part of Operation, what is called Lone Star, uh, by the governor there that had prohibited federal border agents from performing their duties. Our high court, by a vote of five to four, cleared the way for federal agents to remove that razor wire, um, which administration officials, immigration advocates have called dangerous and inhumane. The Department of Homeland Security also argued that the state's activities interfered with clear federal supremacy in setting border enforcement policy. Thoughts about this decision? Well, I'm really glad that we're moving to the side of being humane and treating people humanely, um, not attempting to cause their death <laughs> in some way. Um, but U.S. border policy has been built on this notion of cruelty and inhumanity, right? Forcing people to cross the border at the in the desert where it's more dangerous and it's more likely to cause their deaths. Uh, the, these kinds of border policies don't just impact people at the border or people crossing the physical border, but they also have impacts on families and family members who are in the United States already, who are looking forward and to the arrival of those members and worrying about their safety. Mm -hmm. What about the busing of migrants to northern cities, which has happened over the past months? Also, um, um, uh, an action by Texas Governor uh, Greg Abbott. Is that uh, how, how do you view that action, giving northern cities what he would say, a, a taste of what has been the reality in the South for a long time? I think that's really kind of cynical uh, because People in the U U.S. Midwest and in the North have long been welcoming of immigrants from various places. We don't need a taste of the border experience because we already have experienced it. Um, a few years ago, I had the very interesting experience of watching a CNN clip and pe the people that I was with knew those people who were being uh, surrounded by Border Patrol um, on TV in that moment. They knew what happened to their loved ones from their village because they saw them on CNN. And that was, you know, not not an experience I had ever had before, but certainly to be expected. Right. Because the people who are crossing the border are real people with real lives and real family members. And they are often not staying in Texas. They're heading to places like Wisconsin and Minnesota and Iowa. We, we have experience welcoming these people. And I applaud all the activists and community members who are attempting to make these people uh, feel at home and be able to make their lives as they can where, when they've been bused to wherever they've been bused to. Mm -hmm. Christina, I wonder if you could compare... 
how the past three presidents, Obama, Trump, and Biden, have dealt with the southern border issue. I think it's not for nothing that some activists called President Obama the deporter-in-chief. Certainly, both Obama and Biden have done a better job at dealing with immigration and immigration issues and trying to negotiate the best deals that they can uh, in the political climate that they're dealing with than Donald Trump, who sort of explicitly was trying to, uh, you know, stoke the rhetoric of fear and, and divisiveness. But I would very much want more and better and more inclusive and more welcoming policies, even from the Democratic side. Christina, Perhaps ending here on a personal note, you mentioned at the start that you have Latino heritage here. Um, I don't know if I can ask you, can you step out of your your academic role as someone who studies immigration policy and communities and and just speak from your heart uh, to someone who is not convinced of the things that you have said about what it feels like to be a recent immigrant to this country or to re- belong to a family that uh, that has, uh, you know, migrants and immigrants in it. Absolutely. Except for a twist of fate, any one of us who is a citizen or permanent resident of uh, Iowa could be in a very different circumstance and could be one of the people who is trying to escape strife and hardship wherever we started out in life and wanting to try to make life better for our families and our children. And the United States is a primary place in the world for those dreams to be able to come true. Certainly in my case, that dream has come true. My grandparents worked as migrant workers and they happened to be born in the United States as citizens. And based on that and their hard work and lots of luck in life, I was able as their grandchild to become a professor and have a cushy office job that I really enjoy and love and to be able to talk to you today. Um, And I would just want those same opportunities for as many people as possible, because we certainly have the resources and can choose to distribute them in ways that make that possible. Christina Ortiz of the University of Minnesota in Morris. Thank you for joining us today, Christina, with your views. Thank you so much. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Let's continue to focus on immigration for a few more minutes. But from an economic perspective, Peter Erasm, a university professor of economics at Iowa State University, has stepped into our Ames studio. Hi, Peter. Hello. Thank you for coming in again. We've discussed immigration a number of times in the past on this program and uh, how immigration policy an overhaul there, uh, you've pointed out, could really benefit the economy, our Midwest economy, addressing the workforce shortage, for instance. Now that we have um, this bipartisan immigration deal being negotiated in the U.S. Senate, I wonder if you see an opportunity, a window of opportunity for better immigration policy and a boost to our economy. What are your thoughts? Well, potentially, although uh, the negotiations are dealing with Uh, sort of more the border issues and uh, the use of asylum for uh, immigration as opposed to uh, perhaps uh, the more traditional way that we think of immigration for the labor market, and that is uh, using uh, H-1B visas or some of the uh, uh, quota visas that you can use to come into the United States uh, as a legal resident. 
Mm-hmm. So then what changes would be needed in our immigration policy uh, to have the greatest benefit to our economy in the Midwest and otherwise in the country? Well, I think it would be exploring whether or not we should be expanding access to legal immigration explicitly for uh, the purpose of working in the United States. Um, I don't think that uh, the people who are attempting to cross uh, the southern border, and and I would take some exception to the, the previous speaker in terms of how large that problem has become, I think it is an issue that that needs to be addressed. Uh, but the broader issue is, uh, you know, we've had 55,000 legal visas uh, since 1990 per year. We have 6 million people applying for those legal visas, and there's a lottery system that allocates that. And it's plausible that when we have 2.8 million unfilled vacancies a month, maybe we should start thinking about uh, addressing those issues as well. Mm-hmm. Back to to what you mentioned just a moment ago. So, what would be, from your perspective as an economist, the damage done? Um, plenty of other damage and threats, and uh, uh, to to our country, but not having the secure border that many think we should in in the south. But economic, in, in terms of economics, what what do you see there as the damage? Well, I think that it's just a very costly way of trying to address the interests of people to to come into the U.S. Um, uh, for for various reasons. Um, but if you ask for asylum at at the southern border, there's a legal process that determines whether or not you qualify uh, for asylum, and uh, the ba- the backlog for for uh, handling those issues is now in excess of 600,000 uh, cases. And so it's a very extended uh, and costly process to make that evaluation. And the evaluation is all occurring in, in one port of entry or one sort of broad port of entry, if you view the, the southern border as, as, as that. And that's a legal process, but it's not necessarily the most logical way of doing that. I mean, if you come into the U.S. as a refugee, your case is processed uh, somewhere else in another country. It's not processed in a place where we don't have the facilities to, uh, uh, to, to provide proper care and, and proper uh, uh, necessities of life while your case is being adjudicated. And, and I think we need to come up with some other way of handling these asylum cases, perhaps uh, in, in the port of entry, uh, you know, the, the place of origin rather than, than at, the, at the southern border. Mm-hmm. One of our listeners, Dirk, uh, asks, um, this is, of course, a general election year, uh, what do you see as the likely impacts on the economy if Trump implements policies he's laid out for his second term? And, and then we'll add here that in August... Uh, uh, former President Trump laid out his plans for immigration if elected, including mass deportations and dramatic limits on asylum. Any economic impact that you uh, would share your thoughts on there? Well, what's said on the on the uh, on the platform or the stump or whatever the political process? I don't think you could do mass deportations if you're a resident. If you're currently in the U.S., you're guaranteed by the by the equal protection clause, uh, a judicial uh, assessment of your case. And so 
extrajudicial deportations are not are not constitutional in the United States. And so uh, I don't know what precisely the mechanism would be, but I suspect that you're not going to see uh, uh, a sudden deportation of, of uh, individuals who are currently uh, in the United States, whether, uh, you know, uh, documented or undocumented. We've been seeking... Uh, <laughs> a meaningful overhaul of our immigration policy for a long, long time. Uh, has that, have the obstacles to meaningful change um, changed, in your opinion? Do we, in fact, have a window of opportunity? Is it closing soon, do you see? Well, I think when you have so many unfilled vacancies, I mean, and, and they're uh, causing inflationary pressure, uh, and there's a lot of concern about, I mean, even though we've made some progress in the last few months, a lot of that is related to uh, the reduction in the world price of oil and the reduction of some food prices. Uh, but the, the core inflation is still persistently above 4% and has been for, for three years now. Uh, I think there are reasons why having that many unfilled jobs uh, suggests that we have to do something in order to start filling those jobs and, and to do so in, in a way that, that is uh, uh, going to, to meet the needs uh, of the U.S. economy without disadvantaging or, or bringing immigrants into competition with native-born workers. And I think that perhaps this is a good time to start addressing those broader needs using the more traditional green card, um, uh, temporary uh, work permit status, and, and uh, anticipated progress toward, toward uh, legal permanent residency or, uh, or citizenship. Away from specifically immigration in the final minute, um, by many measures, our, our U.S. economy is strong right now. Unemployment near a lowest point in decades. Inflation slowing down. Wages growing faster than prices since last year. Stock prices surging. Um, the latest GDP uh, numbers from this morning showing an increase in gross domestic, domestic product. Um, telling us that this wild, widely predicted recession never materialized very quickly. Americans are not feeling it. They say the economy is in bad shape. Why is it? And do you think that Americans' attitudes about how well the economy is doing will change? Well, I think there are a couple reasons. One is that um, the surge in, in GDP growth over the last year was fueled by very strong consumer demand. And that very strong consumer demand is effectively done by having a reduction in the savings rate relative to what was true pre-pandemic. Just a and, few seconds and a, left, please. Yeah. Sorry. Oh, sorry. Well, yeah. I don't think we're going to have the same uh, level of growth in, in the coming year. But I think also inflation just saps people's optimism, although perhaps we're on our way back. Peter Erasm, University Professor of Economics at Iowa State University. Thanks for coming in, Peter. Well, thank you for having me. Coming up in just a moment, a live conversation with Des Moines' new mayor, Mayor Connie Bozen. Send your questions to River to River at iowapublicradio.org. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. We're back with more of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. 
Des Moines' new mayor, Connie Bozen, was sworn in at the start of this month. She joins uh, us now live from our Des Moines studio. Mayor Bozen, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. We want to invite our listeners during this uh, 15 or so minutes to join us. Uh, Des Moines residents especially send a question or a concern for Mayor Bozen uh, now to River to River at iowapublicradio.org. Or you can join us uh, via phone, 1-866-780-9100, 1-866-780-9100. Mayor Bozen, what's your first nearly a month as mayor been like? (laughs) Very busy. It's been uh, a lot of meetings. Uh, I just got back from the U.S. Mayor's Conference in Washington, D.C., where I was uh, able to meet with many mayors that and some of those were, when I first got in, uh, the Bloomberg uh, Center for Cities at Harvard University asked 27 mayors to come. And so we spent uh, two and a half days on how to be a new mayor and what you're going to do in your first 100 days. Uh, so many of those mayors were at this conference, so it was great to reconnect and hear what, they're go- you know, what their issues are going through now and how everybody's moving forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've been in city government for some time. What did you learn there? Uh, what do you need to know? What's the learning curve for you? Uh, this, where is it steepest for how to be a new mayor, do you think? Well, I think is you know a lot of it's scheduling, but it's really just understanding uh, that we all have a lot of similar issues uh, that's not that much different between cities. And uh, again, I've been doing between school board and city, many of the issues, are, they're just ongoing, and it's how we're going to go about doing uh, the business of the city. So mm. I don't know if I have a real steep learning curve on it. It's just how do we keep moving forward? Yeah. Well, what are some of the issues that we in uh, Des Moines have in common with other uh, major cities around the country? Well, I think the one thing, you know, if you're an older city, it's how do you uh, keep the revitalization going? How do you improve neighborhoods? How do you uh, do better transit? How do we have more affordable housing? And how do we take care of our homeless population? Mm-hmm. Well, let's go in, because I know that dovetails nicely into your main priorities. What do you put at the, the top of your list of, of main priorities? One of my top ones uh, during even through the campaign, and even when I've been, when I got on the council, was economic development and neighborhood revitalization. Uh, we've got to have uh, a good, strong base so that we can afford all the other things. And in a Des Moines community, because we're the capital city, we have almost, well, I would say maybe a little bit more than 40% of our property we can't tax. It's all nonprofits. So when you think of all the state government, uh, property they own, hospitals, universities, it's a good thing, but it also doesn't give us a strong base like some other communities have. So we need to make sure every piece of property has value. So when I see an empty lot, I say, that's opportunity. We've got to get development on that. And we've got to make sure that like in our downtown area, we've had corporate uh, corporations leave. We need to get those filled up, and I am very actively trying to say we need to go out and recruit maybe 10 small companies instead of one big one. And how do we get people to come back downtown and work downtown and see the advantage? And even our housing downtown. We're, I just met with some people that are converting more of the buildings into housing. Uh, we have a still a huge demand for people who want to live downtown. And then you go out to our neighborhoods, and we have programs like Invest DSM. Uh, that has targeted four neighborhoods, and we're going to be expanding those on reinvesting in the homes and also some of the commercial nodes. And then we have our Improve Our Neighborhoods, 
which is a program to help um, people have forgivable loans to do the outside envelope of their home. So it's a great opportunity for people that might need a new roof, a new windows, new porch, things like that, uh, to get those amenities fixed so that they have a safer uh, home to live in and more energy efficient and things like that. So we're actively going after those, and I want to expand those programs. Mm -hmm. Up to this point in, in the economic development you just outlined, what have been or what are the obstacles you're encountering or anticipate in uh, pursuing uh, the specifics you just outlined? Well, I think it's always, you know, it's uh, the working change environment for a downtown. How do we recreate, you know, as the workforce has changed from more at home? But I think anything is sometimes it gets down to time and money. Everything gets down to that. But uh, I think there's the momentum. I think we've seen great growth in some of our areas and some of our programs we put together. And I think we're just going to continue to build upon that because everybody, I think everybody wants the capital city to succeed and be as vibrant as it can be. And I think we have shown we can do that and uh, we will continue to work on that. Mayor Bozen, talk more about um, housing, uh, what you see as the um, needed changes there and how you will attack that. Well, I think when we look at housing, you know, Des Moines has a lot of affordable housing. We, uh, what we need to do is, on our major corridors, create more density, uh, whether it be row houses or more sixplexes, fourplexes, and infill into the areas, because we have lots available. Uh, so how do we do that with an affordability com component? Uh, I don't know if you can build affordable housing without some type of incentive, because uh, the cost of construction is really high. Uh, but I think we need to keep the current stock we have in good condition. And that's one thing the ION program is doing. Because, uh, again, uh, many of our neighborhoods offer opportunity for affordability. Uh, but we just need more housing. And that's throughout the metro region. So I think we have to look at the studies that have been done and say, what can we do as a region to uh, take care of the housing needs of, our, of the citizens that are coming to Des Moines or currently here? One of the issues you, you ran your campaign on is uh, public safety in our um, state capital. Uh, what specifically and how are you addressing that? Mine is, to, I keep saying, reimagine how we do public safety. Uh, I think the one thing that we I have stressed is the expansion of our care program, our crisis intervention. I just heard that we did over 6,000 calls uh, last year with just the crisis team. Uh, and I think it's a great way to get the people, because many of the calls coming in, we all know, are mental health. And you don't necessarily need a officer going out for those, but maybe an officer with a social worker, and then the social worker can take care of it, or the mental health specialist. And uh, really addressing the needs of the community so that we don't have to get an intervention that isn't the proper intervention. And I think uh, knowing and training our officers, I know they are all getting... Uh, some training, but we have a couple that have extensive training. I think we need to expand that so we have more officers that know how to handle the mental health calls that they're getting. And it, and it really is better for the person that's calling, and it's better for our people that are serving. Uh, and I know that we work with Broadlands, and they've been great partners to provide uh, the people that know how to, you know, the social workers and the mental health specialists, and we will continue hopefully to expand those programs, because I know there's many more calls they could go out on. Mm -hmm. And is there any pushback there? Um, police are happy to do that. 
um, to sort of separate these and do a a little more sort of fine tuning in how we respond uh, to crises from residents? I don't I have not heard pushback. In fact, uh, I think people welcome the expansion or and even having the more intensive training, because, again, as one of the community members that I had met with, uh, his son had an issue where police had to be called out. Well, there's no recourse. So he, you know, they had to take him to jail because he had gotten violent. But really, if you'd had a mental health specialist, they might have been able to talk him down. I think police officers want people to have the best opportunities. And they, uh, you know, sometimes you get the calls and you don't have, there isn't much recourse. But I think that uh, they welcome that because they didn't get into policing probably to do social work and some of the issues they're facing. And that way they can spend their time on on the more serious crimes that impacts people's lives. But we just need to make sure that we're giving the mental health support to the people that do need it and the proper interventions and the proper direction. So that's one thing we are um, coordinating with Polk County on a sobering center so that if you're picked up and you're intoxicated, or you will go to the sobering center and not straight to jail. Again, we need, and then hopefully get you the services you need. Uh, I think that if we do more of that, it's better for everybody all around. Uh, Gary and Davenport asking, how should Des Moines deal with a large number of immigrants uh, bust or flown in from Texas? Uh, hypothetical question. I guess that has not happened yet, has it? Or No, it has not. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. Iowa's, you know, we look at what Governor Ray started as a welcoming state. And I think we would have to see what would happen at this point. We have not had it had that happen in Des Moines. And I think that there's a lot of nonprofits that, you know, if if that would happen, would step forward. Uh, But at this time, you know, we've always been a welcoming state. We did that when Governor Ray and it showed that you look at the population that's here from those days, and it was a plus for the state. Uh, So we would have to see if that would ever happen. Yeah, and I'm just thinking this through. I mean, Chicago, New York City; those are, uh, you know, blue blue cities in blue blue states. So Iowa, being a Republican state, solidly Republican state uh, as a whole, you wouldn't think that, for instance, the Texas governor would 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 target, so to speak, uh, uh, Des Moines in that way, would you? I would not think so, and I think we have to start understanding. And these are people's lives, and we shouldn't. You know, we need to understand that there needs to be an overall policy change on how we deal with that and take the impact of these people that have traveled thousands of miles under dire straits and uh, have some compassion and understand what we need to do to help people. Another listener in Des Moines asking, uh, what are your thoughts on uh, city and council governments, uh, not only here in Iowa, but around the country, bringing up resolutions calling for a ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war? Is this something... You'd support, initiate in the Des Moines City Council. Why or why not, asks the listener. We're trying to stick to what we can have impact over, and I believe that is a national issue. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, nevertheless, there are national and international issues that uh, you can tackle at a city level. Your predecessor, Frank County, uh, forged a reputation for environmental advocacy, uh, even on a national and a global scale. To what extent will you carry on that advocacy? Well, because of the advocacy and the plans, we just adopted a uh, a very large ADAPT DSM. It's a sustainable pro- 
program that, uh, in fact, we even have an energy uh, staff person who is over that adapting the plan. And so we're going to move forward. It's not, it's multifaceted. It's uh, food insecurity. It's how can we better uh, do the energy and how can we make us, our community more sustainable. And we'll continue that work. And we have uh, programs already in place and we will expand upon those. Mm-hmm. You have listening sessions in the community. What input to, do you hope to receive in those listening sessions? Perhaps you've already had some this uh, first uh, month in, in your new office. Uh, what do you hope to receive that you wouldn't otherwise from those? Well, I've always gone to a lot of the neighborhood meetings, but what I want to do is uh, even go to other groups that maybe aren't necessarily within the neighborhood association. And I hope to understand what their needs are. Um, and so among communities that you know, what can we do to make uh, our services better, but also maybe to share what services are available, because I think sometimes people don't know all of the things that we have to offer, and to make sure that people know who to contact. And so it's really going to be a reverse. It's going to be both me listening and me hopefully give information out that would be helpful for our citizens. I am setting those meetings up now. I, in fact, I was at a neighborhood meeting yesterday or last night, and I've already got a request in that I come to uh, a group of people to visit with them about what we, you know, what we want to see for Des Moines and what people can do to make Des Moines the best community it can be. Mm-hmm. Uh, you are Des Moines' first female mayor. Uh, what impact do you see yourself having in that role? Uh, it's been it's been exciting to see. Uh, I talk about the story when I was putting up yard signs. I was at a yard with two two little seven-year-olds. And I said, you know, I could be the first woman mayor. And the excitement, they go, really? You know, <laughs> and then and then there was a group of Girl Scouts right after I got elected. And one of the girls had written a, she had to write about women in, whether it be politics or business or whatever. And I guess she had written about me. And I got to meet her. Uh, just the excitement to say, it really is to show that you can, you can do whatever you want to do. And if I can help lead young women to say, you can the sky's the limit, do whatever you want, uh, I am glad to be part of that role. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a minute or so left. What, what else are you most excited about as you um, dive into this new venture? Well, I think the thing for me is just the opportunity and what we can do to build on the momentum that we have in Des Moines and continue that work. Uh, uh, people, again, have been so welcoming and so open and giving good advice and we've lived through a 23-inch week of snow. And uh, so you just never know what's going to come up. But we will tackle every issue with how we can make uh, this the best city for the people we serve. Mm-hmm. We do have a thaw, so that's nice, isn't it? <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> it's very nice to have. But uh, it's, uh, like I said, it's been a great experience so far. Uh, how many days in? <laughs> and so... I look forward to my four years that I have, and I have a great council. We're going to work together. We will have an election to fill my spot, and I'm looking forward to the upcoming years and what we can accomplish. Mm -hmm. I understand one of the frequent questions you've been getting uh, has to do with the Appalachian stand at the Iowa State Fair fair that you've been running for years. You won the uh, Best New Food in 2018 for the Apple Egg Roll. have people been asking you if that will continue? Yes, I've been asked that more than I thought. I was kind of surprised. Yes, I have been asked. And yes, Appalachians will continue. 
and the egg roll will continue. So you'll be at the Iowa State Year uh, Fair um, in the summer, yes, um, and, and and on into that and, to, and and creating new apple foods. Well, my grandson was trying to give me some new ideas at Christmas time, so we you never know we might come up with something new. Mm-hmm. Okay, those are probably held under. Well, there's top they... secret. You can't give it out. <laughs> okay, thank you very much for coming into our Des Moines studio, the uh, mayor of Des Moines. Connie Bozen. Thank you so much, Mayor. Uh, Thank you for having me. A new report ranks Iowa last in the U.S. for the number of state psychiatric beds per per 100,000 residents tomorrow. One of the things we'll be talking about tomorrow on our news buzz. Also, IPR's Grant Gerlach with a look at activity at the Iowa State House this week. Also, a new bill we'll look at that would prevent Iowans from challenging Donald Trump's place on the 2024 general election ballot uh, on 14th Amendment grounds. You've been observing that's been happening in other states. Uh, Plenty to talk about tomorrow. Catch your news buzz uh, next time, tomorrow at this time. Or subscribe to the River to River podcast and never miss an episode. Today's River to River, produced by Danny Gear with technical support from Tony Sarabia and Steve Cooper. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us.